1: it feels to me that the sitting is starting to settle a little bit. Can everybody feel that? Mm-hmm. Like compared to the first day? Mm-hmm. Um, you just start feeling the breath. And then something happens where the mind starts to settle. And then it gets caught. But as the days go on, when the mind gets caught, when your attention gets caught... It's not as dramatic. The drama starts to decrease a little bit. Wouldn't this be so nice if there was a little bit less drama in your life? And I feel like this is really a hygiene practice. You know like you floss every day. Do you floss every day? Oh, okay. Um, So meditation is like mental floss. And you're just you're flossing all of the plaque that builds up. Because you know what happens during the day? It's like little things. People say something to you that hurts your feelings. And then you're just so busy you don't think about it again. And you say a dumb thing and you feel bad but you just forget about it. And these little things <coughs> build up. And over time, parts of our heart get heavy and hard. And then we go around and we think everything's fine but it's not until we really sit down and get quiet that we start to see that oh there's actually um, maybe not the kind of lightness or freedom that there could be because um, our reactivity is so dominant all the time and it hardens our capacity for empathy and creativity so This is what I'd like to talk about this afternoon. And it seemed like yesterday not sticking to the text and just working with terms uh, worked better for many of you. So I'll just keep doing that today. My hope is that at the end of this five-day intensive, you'll go home and you'll read the text and you'll see, oh, this text that was impenetrable, I sort of get the code language now. Because it's written in code. It's like, if I wanted to find out—I've tried this before—if you want to find out about birds, okay, you go, you look outside, and you see a finch, and you want to know, is that a finch? Well, if you go to the bird encyclopedia, it will say, a finch is a sparrow dipped in raspberry juice. That's actually what it says. A sparrow dipped in raspberry juice. So if you try to go close to the finch and like smell it for raspberry, (laughs) you've kind of missed the metaphor, right? So if I wanted to explain to you that when you retract and protract your scapula, that if you look at that with your mind's eye and you imagine that those are elevator doors, closing and opening, then you'll, you'll feel that movement because when you use metaphor, it allows you to go into the subtle body, which is this space that language can't quite capture. So metaphor is very important for opening up our feeling body. So a text like this is written in metaphoric language. It's written in what I call code language. And if you approach it just literally, then I think you really miss the beauty of what's being presented. So I thought today I would just keep going through terms and try to open them up for you a little bit so that you can see how these are practices that promise freedom from compulsion. So, um, the first term that we come across in this text that I think often gets mistranslated is the term moksha. Have you ever heard of this term before? Um, So the term moksha usually gets translated as freedom or liberation. And people reify the term as if it's just freedom, that's like this state you're in all the time, and liberation, you're just liberated. But really, you need to ask a question when you hear a term like this, which is freedom from what? Liberation from what? Enlightened about what? Not just enlightenment. right? Enlightened about what? What are you enlightened about? And so freedom is freedom from the compulsion of greed, of anger, and of delusion. And the word moksha, which is translated as liberation or freedom, um, it actually, etymologically, refers to the last phase of an eclipse. Okay? So picture planet A covered up by planet B. You can't see planet A. And then slowly, they separate from each other, and then you can see planet A again and it's bright and you can see planet B again and it's bright so it's almost like moksha is a process of uncovering of uncovering and we're uncovering habits that have covered over our inherent capacity to be awake to respond creatively and to feel a kind of lightness in our hearts that's hard to feel when we don't know what we feel. So, um, every tradition and this is true of every single spiritual tradition that I can think of, and every religion, elevates certain terms to make them seem impossible to achieve. And when you elevate certain terms, you turn those terms into states. So you take samadhi, and you make that like the ultimate state. You take nirvana, you make it the ultimate state. And then, nobody's ever seen anyone in this state. So then, you elevate dead people. And you say, oh, well, in our generation, everyone's just too distracted. And so, you know, nobody's really fully enlightened. It's just these people in the past. Which is always helpful, because then you can't actually verify anything. You see? The other thing that this does is it creates a split between monastic or ascetic life and domestic life. So that if you're a woman at home nursing, well then that's not spiritual practice. Spiritual practice is like the one who's going on the meditation
0: retreats.
1: (laughs) right? And then it kind of relegates most of women's work to being like not spiritual. And then women feel like they can't really do their spiritual work until the kids are out of the house. And then they're going to start going into yoga workshops. You see? So it would be incomplete to not see the gender bias that is involved in the way some of these terms get translated, you see. So, um, we're going to play with that a little bit this afternoon. So, uh, I'd like to read from... This is a wonderful book with a terrible cover. Um, Catherine's been talking about Richard Freeman a lot, so this is his wonderful book called The Mirror of Yoga. Uh, Listen to what he says about kundalini. Because images of uncoiled snakes and vibrating gods or goddesses standing upright at the base of the pelvis are so vivid and colorful, the idea of kundalini awakening is universally appealing. It's very easy for the mind to understand the images and to hold on to the ideas they represent, In fact, the kundalini rising is such an attractive image that we may hold too tightly to our vision of it, and in so doing, avoid the actual experience if we happen to encounter it. It is important to remember that the process of yoga is really the observation of what is. Hear that? It's the observation of what is, not the reduction of what is to our theory about it, and to our images of what we would like it to be. Kundalini is a metaphorical description of a direct experience of reality in the present moment. But if our image of the snake awakening in the central axis is so wildly appealing that we grasp it and hang our imagination on it and put it on a pedestal, we short-circuit any chance we might have of actually experiencing the central channel. Did everybody hear that?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So, the word kundalini comes from the word kunda, which means a coil, and it's describing a coiled serpent in the pelvic floor, which is, don't tell anyone, a metaphor. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And it's a metaphor for the embodied experience of the central axis being completely open. Which is just being, in an embodied way, being totally awake without holding on to what's happening in the present moment. In very rich metaphorical imagery, which is gorgeous. Sometimes the Kundalini is also called Prana Devata, the goddess of prana. And it's said that she has two feet that stand on your pelvic floor and the, roof of, and the crown of her head presses into the roof of your mouth. And it said, when this starts happening, you better get out of the way. Okay? And these are all images to talk about how we have moments when moksha appears. When awakening appears. And just like an eclipse, there are then phases where it, where it gets covered over again. So the first thing we have to do with terms like awakening is recognize they're temporal. And the word that's used over and over again in this text, which is very easy to get confused by, is um, Soma or Amrita. Do you remember I talked about that the first day? Amrita is usually described as the nectar of immortality. So they talk all about semen and menstrual fluid and immortal, this nectar that's going to drip from the moon and it's going to drip down through your uh, glottis. And there are a lot of studios and workshops of tantra and kundalini yoga that you can go to where they like, vibrate and they like stand upside down to try and get the nectar to drop. Okay. So I want to describe my reading of what's meant by this, which is that Amrita means the deathless. The deathless, not being dead. Okay, And it's very easy to translate that as a positive, which is immortal, to become immortal. But when you do that, I think you miss what's meant by the deathless. This is The Buddha also used this term, the deathless, and also the unconditioned. Like you reach something that just has no conditions whatsoever. As if something has no conditions. But Tabby Joyce used to have this joke all the time. He used to say, meditate on the unconditioned reality. And he'd just be like... Because whatever you notice, it's conditioned by your noticing it. And so he would always laugh, you know. Um, so... What's meant by immortality, this took me a long time to figure out, is literally death-less, i.e. not being dead. When you are caught in compulsive habits, when you're greedy, when you're really angry, you're dead. When you sit in meditation, and I don't know if this has happened to you, but you realize that you're constantly thinking about yourself. I don't know if anyone's had that realization yet. To see that you call it thinking, but it's really thinking about you. You see? And even when you're theorizing about another person, that's just actually continue your own self-image. So when you're caught up in that kind of repetitiveness, you're dead. You're not flourishing... You're not creative. And that's why meditation practice is so good for artists. Because when you're an artist, you, it's hard to be in a place where you have access to new ideas. Because most artists are basically stealing other people's ideas and like rehashing them. Picasso said an artist is a thief. Right? Right? But it's only once in a while that we get a new idea or a new image, and they usually come to us uninvited. They surprise us, right? So in meditation practice, we're literally clearing Akash, clearing a space, so that in that space our imagination can come alive. So that moment to moment mindfulness is moksha, it's liberation from the patterns that deaden us. So the Amrit, this this nectar, is a metaphor for moments of freedom where we're not dead. And you can review the whole day today and consider how many times during the day you're really just dead to the experience. You weren't there. Do you know what I'm talking about? Or maybe you've had like years of your life like this. Maybe high school was like this. You're like, I was never there. People say, what high school did you go to? And you're like, I I just was never really, I never really went to high school. (laughs) Well, did you graduate? Yeah, I graduated, but I just, I I wasn't there. This is called cannabis. (laughs) (laughs) Cannabis. So, the unconditioned, these terms, like deathless, unconditioned, those were the terms used in ancient India to describe God. Right? God is eternal. God is the unconditioned. And a lot of these texts were, and and I think you could hear this at the beginning of the Pradipika, they were anti-religious texts. They didn't want to have to do anything to do with religion. So they would take these terms that everybody was using to describe God and they would use them to mean something else. So it was like a purposeful misreading. Right? So the unconditioned, instead of it referring to God, refers to moments where you're unconditioned by greed. Moments when you're unconditioned by anger. And our practice as yogis and yoginis is to really know those moments. I talked yesterday, I think, or the day before, about how we know negativity so well. It's really important to know each moment so well. And then there are moments where you're struck with this feeling of being free. A sense of being free. Free from what? Free from compulsion freed from repetition and that is moksha that's awakening so awakening is not a state so when you hear these stories like Eckhart Tolle, he had this experience and now he's awake and writing books and on Oprah and whatever so I find it more helpful to see awakening as a process that doesn't have an end Because delusion doesn't have an end, you see. So instead of this idea of someone having an awakening experience, something shifts and that's it, I don't buy it. Because delusions are part of the natural experience of being human. So we need to be awake to our delusions, you see. It's not like you have awakening and its opposite is delusion. There are moments of awakening, so it's temporal. And moments of delusion. And I think we can all feel this in our practice, can't we? You can feel where you're just dead. And what do I mean by dead? I mean stuck. Mm -hmm. And I think all of us know that when we're having a phase in our life where we're overthinking something, it's a phase where we're stuck. We're really stuck, like we don't know how to move. And we're unwilling usually to try something because we've become so tight in our perspective. So that's what I mean about your heart. And I don't mean your heart. (laughs) I have to say these things because you never know. So what we're doing is we're taking these terms like unconditioned and making them... We're turning them from nouns into verbs. So, so unconditioning greed. And what do I mean by greed? All the time holding on to something and wanting more of it. And greed is deep down at the center, greed is the inability to choose something. You see? We think that greed is like wanting to choose lots of things, but actually, greed is really the energy of avoiding choosing one thing. You see? It's avoiding, in an embodied way, committing to something. And so... The energy of greed keeps us out of ourselves. And that's why it's really helpful to understand that this practice of working with our habits is a deeply ethical practice. Because if the fire of greed and anger and confusion, which sometimes I like to translate as boredom, is alive in us, then we start to see that... um, we're not fully in our lives and when you're fully in your life you can't see it because you're not outside of it watching it so there's no self-consciousness in other words, nobody gets enlightened because there's no the whole point of awakening is that there isn't a separate me that it's happening to right? we all know this experience where you're just fully in the experience so much so that you're not there because there's not a separate Rita there's not a separate Catherine there's not a separate Lisa having the experience see? and this is what we call non-duality You see, which is freedom freedom from what? Freedom from the duality of another person measuring your experience all the time. Comparing your experience all the time. Am I good? Do they like me? Or they don't like me? I wonder how I look right now. We have a friend living with us right now who's in her early 20s. And she said to me that... um, We were talking about taking photos and how people take photos so much. And she was saying, you know, like, when you take out a camera, every girl in the room goes into a pose and knows what way to move to get the right side and everything. And And I really, I was like, that is not true. And then all these women who are in the room were, like, staring (laughs) a hole at me, like, you're naive.
0: naive." (laughs) Um,
1: what's wrong with that is that there's a separate you that's watching the experience and when there's a you that's always watching yourself have the experience there's always a level of anxiety and you can't medicate that anxiety away because the anxiety is existential And what I mean by that is that when you're always building up your sense of yourself, it creates an anxiety because the self that you're building is only a film made out of memory and images. It doesn't actually exist as a thing, you see. And so if you can't start to look at that, then you believe in yourself, but the self that you're believing in is is not a self that really exists. And then it becomes very hard for that self to give up its perspective. So, for example, it can become very hard to forgive people. Because you having someone you don't like Allows you to continue your theory about this theoretical self. And then it's really hard to forgive yourself because you have a certain way that you need to be. And that's why high school has so much suffering. Because in high school, many people are like trying to be one version of themselves. And you try to fix yourself into one category but nobody can fit in the category, (laughs) right? I'm emo, I'm like whatever, but it doesn't work. Hopefully you've all had this experience. It doesn't work. So, um, the trick is to start doing this very slowly Little by little. So, in the yoga practice, every time you step back to samastitihi, you know that pose? You step back to and whatever, it's my favorite pose. And the reason is, is because you discovered that? Every, every time you step back to samastitihi, whatever pose you were doing, you, for, you give it up. You forget about it. You don't, go, you don't come back to samasthiti. and you're like, whoa, that was amazing today. <laughs> I was amazing. That must be what Amaka feels like, you know? <laughs> so you give that, you just give that up completely. And then if the next pose is really sour, when you come back to samasthiti, you give that up. And that's the nice thing about the vinyasa upward dog, downward dog, you come back and you start again. And that's the beautiful thing, like in corpse pose, I always say, when you come out of corpse pose, don't hold on to it. You see some people like some people just don't come out of Corso. They're just like lying there, the class ends, the janit, the karma person's in there cleaning up, and someone's just like oh, in the sensation of such deep relaxation. And you just want to hit them. Like, don't, don't hold on. And so if yoga Is indeed, and you don't have to believe me, but if you want to try translating the term yoga as intimacy, then the game that you're playing, the sport of yoga, is to be deeply connected to what's happening right now and at the same time to not hold on to it. And this is the key to parenting this is the key to joy, this is the key to freedom, is how do we become so close with whatever is in the present moment, however painful or beautiful it is, and no greed. We don't have to have that. And then what starts happening is you start falling in love with things. You fall in love with people, you fall in love with people you don't like, you fall in love with buildings. You fall in love with parks. You fall in love with certain trees. You even fall in love with cars. Because cars are also scenery. Right? And you'll see like a certain car. And you'll fall in love with this color. And you just, you'll begin to have a more aesthetic experience of your life. But when I say falling in love, I mean, there's a deep connection maybe with a person, for example. But it's not about you. It's just really beautiful. And if you stick a you in there, it's a disaster. Because then you're suffering, oh my God, but I can't get that. I can't have that car. I can't afford that car. Yes? Um,
0: So I just understand what you're saying. And what comes up for me is what I've been studying lately, which is the idea that we have an ego uh-huh. which is sort of what you're describing and building up this false self that <coughs> relate to and then our true self. Uh uh-huh. self. How, is there an overlap there? No, okay. no. And what's the difference?
1: I think there's such thing as a false self, okay. but I don't think there's such thing as a true self. <laughs> in other words, a false self is the self that's thinking about itself right. in the moment as a self separated out from the moment, but the absence of that is just what's happening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There, is, but psychologists call that a true self, and in the moment you call that a true self, you've fixed the thing, and you've completely missed it. In other words. I yeah. yeah. In other words, when you're fully in your experience. It's not, there's not a true self having the experience. There's just the experience. Well, if you say there's no self having the experience, then it, that's a reverse theological position also. There's just this experience. It has nothing to do with self or no self. Yeah.
0: And then often people get anxious for, for that, the moment of, oh then I don't exist
1: yeah exactly or another danger is the whole like authenticity movement Mm -hmm. like oh well in this moment I'm just like really authentically (laughs) me (laughs) and it's like a little bit too self conscious a little bit rigid Mm -hmm. can you just
0: talk a little bit more about the, uh, the intimacy yeah. The you get the intimacy piece? Well,
1: okay. <laughs> you should be sitting <laughs> on, <okay>. here. <laughs>
0: but the letting so it go part, right? Like being yeah. really intimate with what's there in the moment and okay. not holding on.
1: Yeah. If, Let's define what we mean by letting go.
0: Well, that's, what, that's why what I'm a little confused about is if you're truly intimate with what's happening, there's no separate self.
1: Right. There's nothing to let go of. Right. Right.
0: So then. As soon as you I guess as soon as you recognize that there is something.
1: So there's a problem with all this model, which is called biology. (laughs) And the problem with biology is that human beings, we when we have a pleasurable experience, we want it to continue. Mm -hmm. This is this is just deep in our biology is pleasure. We're pleasure seeking. Okay. All that negativity bias stuff, forget that. Really, what we just want is pleasure. <laughs> okay? Someone gives you a little piece of uh, someone gives you an espresso, and before you even have a sip, you're wondering if you can come back tomorrow for another espresso, right? Or how many times are you at a party and it's just like a beautiful Oh no, I never have that experience. Okay. You're with another person and it's like a beautiful time and like you just really don't want it to end is your birthday and it was so beautiful and like tomorrow it's not your birthday and nobody's gonna <laughs> give you anything <laughs> is that a good example um, or this intensive right you're in the intensive but tomorrow as it starts to end you can be like oh my god this you'll start to feel kind of how beautiful it was together and also we're never gonna do this again We're never, ever going to have this experience together again. So when you... This is a long answer to your question, but when you turn towards something and you connect with it, then biologically something in us wants to hold on to what we're connecting with, if it's pleasurable. And if it's not pleasurable, we can turn towards it, but we also want to get out of it pretty fast. So this is what I call reactivity, which is craving for more or aversion. Right? It's all reactivity. And every second, our brains are oscillating between wanting, not wanting, wanting, not wanting, more, 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 less, less, less. You notice this? Probably happened all day today. So. You can't change that. I'm sorry for all of you Buddhists who think that you can end craving. You can't end craving. It can't. It's biological. It's built into our system. It can't ever come to an end. But, so, but what you're letting go of is the reactivity in craving in relationship to an object. So let me give you an example. If something comes up that you're really wanting okay when we say let go you will translate that as I should let go of that thing but what we mean by letting go is not letting go of the thing but letting go of the reactivity you see it's working a little bit more local so does that make sense a little bit? I know this is like a little bit subtle, but it's very important. So if a thought comes up, you're not letting go of the thought. You're letting go of all the stuff you do to that thought. And then when you do that, you become more intimate with what you're in relationship with. So if I, <clears throat> if I'm going to be more intimate with Lisa... And she's talking to me as she's talking she's gonna say things that I want to hold on to and say other things that I don't really I don't totally agree with so in order so if I stay in my reactivity there's me and there's a separate me thinking about what's happening to the me that's in the experience with you but when I start letting go of my reactivity So I'm letting go. So the reactivity is happening. I'm not pretending it can't happen anymore. It's going to happen. And I start staying with my breathing, looking into her eyes, listening to what she's saying, asking her questions, and the, the reactivity starts to diminish. Then intimacy arises. So yoga, intimacy, arises in the absence of reactivity. And compulsion breeds in the presence of reactivity. So the more you stay reactive, the more compulsive you get. And the more that you continue to work with your reactivity, the more that intimacy starts blossoming like a weed growing up out of a sidewalk. Right? Rigid, rigid, rigid. And then there's this moment where you see it, and then... Something blooms, that's the moment of nirvana. That's a moment of freedom. It's a moment with the absence, it's a moment of not being dead. Hmm. Right? So we're having a conversation, and if I'm thinking the whole time, oh, you remind me of someone I know, and like, God, she was like so rude sometimes, and like really reminds me of my mom, and you know, and then I'm dead to you. Like, I'm not. So what I'm trying to do is show, number one, how these terms like moksha are temporal. They're not states. And number two, it's relational. Right? So this is like the art of your yoga practice, is how in your relationship to asana, in your relationship with other people, everything is relationships. How to have the courage to get closer to what's happening in the moment, and then when your reactivity arises, don't go with it. Don't hold on to it, and it will change. Okay? And that is Kundalini. So, Kundalini is the serpent. So, picture this Has anybody here ever played accordion? Does anybody have an accordion? Mm-hmm. No.
0: Yeah.
1: Oh. What's that?: Okay, so let's say you have an accordion at home. you haven't played it in a long time. You unbutton it. I'm making all this up. I have <laughs> no what idea what I'm talking that. about. It's I exactly love doing this. <laughs> like the best thing. Okay. So then you open up the accordion, and inside the folds are like dust bunnies and like really gr- have you ever looked closely at a dust bunny? Okay, picture that in the folds of the accordion. So you have a serpent that's like an accordion, right? And it's coiled. And when you inhale, the serpent uncoils. And when you exhale, the serpent coils. Okay? Like an accordion. When you inhale, external rotation. When you exhale, when you inhale, so this is the coiling serpent of Kundalini. But the problem is Is that when your body uncoils, inside all of those flaps are old habits and emotions and old, old stories and images and like injuries and that time. And an injury is never just an injury, it's also like a hurt around it or someone that never met the injury properly or like your mother never came at like the right time. Or like, you had to take care of your mother, so she could never come to you. So all this stuff is like inside these grantis, these knots. And so the kundalini process is the opening up of the serpent, and this is the worst part of yoga, is as you open up, what seems like your body, you realize, whoa, it's so much more than my body that's opening up. You see. And so you're mindful of whatever opens up in the process. And so a yoga posture is a pattern that's designed so that you take your mind and your breath in there. And it's one of the things I like about traditional sequences, just to give some credit to them, is there's, there's some logic to opening up in ways that challenge you to feel more and more and more and more and more. And if you practice every day, there's going to be phases of the practice where you don't like what's opening up, and that means your practice is working. And my theory about practice, this is the last opinion I'll give, is that there should always be resistance to practicing. Because, yeah... Because that means your practice is working. Mm. So you might love it. You might be like, I'm so excited to practice today. But some phase in the practice, there should be some resistance. And I'm not just talking about like elastic band resistance. What are they called? Those bands? They're Bear. a band. I don't mean they're a band resistance. I mean, like mental resistance. And that means that you're working with your reactivity. But you don't believe it you don't actually believe it. And then, so when you're work, so then, like in the workplace or whatever, when something happens it's like it's okay, you can absorb it. It's not you. And maybe even something good happens for someone else and you're happy. That's the sign your practice is working. And something bad happens to somebody and it really upsets you. And then your heart is a little bit more tender, and you're motivated to help people.
0: Mm-hmm. I just could say, I mean, I think that's so helpful, because I think that's another um, uh, common thing, right? Yoga's supposed to make you feel good. Yeah. You, know, you get a lot. And I think, yeah. I don't know, my own personal experience anyway, was I wasn't feeling great at a lot yeah. of different points. And yeah. then was like, you know, the shame and... Yeah. Oh, I'm feeling like this, should I shouldn't be feeling like this, that, you know,
1: you yeah. know you're on top of it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's why, like, if you're the person at the front of the room teaching, it's very, very important to teach from your experience. So the good side of that is you're sharing what you've really worked with, and the other side of it is it makes you real. So I always think there's two kinds of teachers. Here's another opinion. One is teachers who are masterful. They're so masterful that when you practice with them, you just feel like, I just want to be like them. And then there's also teachers who are totally themselves and a bit of a mess. And when you're with them, you feel like permission to be completely yourself. And I think it's good to have a good combo of those two things. Because there are some things that you can become masterful at when you practice them again and again and again and again and again. And you also want to model how it really works in your own life. So this is important, I think. And so it's exactly the same with, like, if you have a mother... I'm using examples of mothers, it could be anybody, but if you have a mom who's like happy all the time, she's always trying to be happy. This is my response to your question. She's always trying to be happy and like kids are upset, it's like, oh just smile, it's okay, positive, you know, like let's turn on a musical in the (laughs) minivan and everybody be happy. Then like over time it's really hard for those kids to feel their experience of other emotions. So whatever emotions the parent has a hard time feeling, those kids will have a hard time feeling. And it gets passed down, right? Because the kids don't see that feeling named or modeled, you see. And it can be in reverse, yeah. Someone's like negative, negative, negative all the time, yeah. yeah but that's easy to work with because you just get espresso. Yeah. negative, negative, negative. Just get a machine at home. Doesn't matter how much it costs. Just espresso machine. Everything will be okay. What's that? Yeah, I'm writing an article right now called um, "Chasing Happiness." And the question of the article is, is happiness oppressing us? Because what we're doing in yoga practice is we're learning how to be free in any mental state. How to not be dead. But if you're going to make a commitment to be free in any mental state, it has nothing to do with how you feel. Like, it doesn't matter what you feel. Like, if you're in pain, you can be free in pain. So I think we have to be careful sometimes of the yoga cult of happiness. Because, like, if you practice, it's not going to make you happy. The way I think about it is that happiness is a byproduct of the practice, not the goal of practice. Just because you become lighter... And then you feel kind of joyful. But you're not like chasing after happiness. That becomes oppressive over time. Yes?
0: So isn't freedom then more presence with whatever is showing up rather than saying that freedom is the absence of clinging? One more
1: step. Presence and... Not holding on to it. Yet. Yeah. Well, Not holding it's already on to changing it. anyway. Yeah. So. Yeah.
0: Just present.
1: Yeah. 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 And it's temporary. Yeah. So the conditions change, and then you have to start all over again. All over again. Yeah. Because um, things change; nothing stays the same.
0: It's good to have a like sense
1: of humor. <laughs> yeah, and that's true in our inner states. It's totally true with our body, right? Like maybe next year in March, you're going to have uh, an injury or you're going to be ill and you'll think, oh my God, last year I was like doing these crazy imprints. <laughs> <laughs> and this year, like here I am like in bed and, and like my it's terrible, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then the year after, you might be, like, teaching a workshop. You'd be like, oh, I'm you know. But the key is, like, you don't hold on to any of it. So I have a practice that I do. Whenever the workshop day ends, this is what I do when I go home. I shouldn't tell you this. This is a true thing. Okay, this is what I do. I imagine myself as a balloon. So I've just taught, like, Michael teaching. Teacher Michael is a balloon, I've been doing this for many years. This is fun. And I'm lying down and I imagine the balloon fading away. And then with my mind, I pop it. I just like see myself teaching in this balloon. And it gets further and further. And then I pop it. It takes three minutes and it's so helpful. It's really helpful. And I usually try and do it before I see my family. And it's good. And then I don't bring the workshop home. Mm-hmm. Just like, or like my version of myself teaching. Um, so you can try this in different ways. And that's also shavasana. It's letting go of your identification, letting it go, letting it go, letting it go. Okay? So, hatha yoga is touching the nectar of immortality which is touching the experience of not being dead and really knowing it but it's not a state that like you hit and then you're good man I'm good now I'm good. yeah and so let's be very very careful about that let's be careful especially those of you who do lots of workshops you know when you go to teachers who are have reached states you should be very careful. That's a good way to start a cult. Yeah. Um, okay, so I want to do one practice before we finish, but let me just take a few minutes, just if there's any comments or questions. We've covered a lot today. I
0: just want to say that what comes up for me with when you're saying letting go is, um, and I finally just come to understand for myself, is like surrender. It. Mm-hmm. So oh, no, I don't know now I feel it's just like you know going into
1: the thing without resisting everything about it and I just felt so much resistance and yeah so really works yeah. yeah I sometimes don't use the word surrender because it doesn't accurately capture the pain <laughs> like like to let something go that's very, very... that's been gripped for a long time is very scary. Like, try apologizing to somebody that, like, you don't like. It's like your whole personality, like, is involved, right? It's, like, really scary. And then it feels so good. It's, like, doesn't matter. Like, it's not about you. And then... And then what begins to happen is then you start to see that the, the, the path of practice is a path of real commitment to impermanence. Like a very deep commitment in your bones to impermanence. Because you start to see that everything you do to try and create permanence really creates suffering. And then your relationships flourish, because you, there's no relationship anymore, right? You're, you say, I'm so committed to this relationship that I'm going to experience it as fluid, right? Because the person that you love is never the same person every day, they're a new person. So every day there's no the relationship. Every day, there's like... This is fish pose, I always think. If there was a mascot for yoga, it would be fish pose. Because a fish swims in water. Right? The ground for the fish is fluid. And this is how we need to be. Much more like water. Right? So this is what Catherine's teaching you, this is what I'm teaching you, this is what the text's teaching you, this is what your children are teaching you, this is what your pets are teaching you, this is what the sky is teaching us, is much more like water. So that the basis of our life is grounding our experience in change. Rather than trying to like put structure on top of fluidity, right? It's just seeing that that the structure just comes naturally. So, like, you should save money for retirement. You should definitely start saving money for retirement, but um, you, but don't you don't hold on to that. Do you understand what I mean? It's like you plan, but it's loose. It's loose. It can change. Your money will go up. Your money will go down or if you're a yoga teacher your money will go down your money will go down (laughs) and your money will go really down (laughs) and then you borrow money and then the other person's money goes down (laughs) yeah and then you open a studio so that other people can teach and all of you can have money that goes down (laughs) this is the truth don't let anybody tell you differently okay so uh, last comment.
0: Um, non-duality is freedom and in, the, in this Hatha Yodok Pradipika the language is very dualistic and mm. Mm. is that imposed by the translator historically?
1: The language of dualism? Yeah. I think the language of dualism is just, is just built into the structure of language itself. I don't think there's such a thing as a non-dualistic language. Language has... The grammar of language has built into it. A subject-object. Yes. Reference. But, but, but that's a good point. Because what I'm promoting is not non-duality. I'm promoting post-non-duality. Okay? Yes. We we're doing post kundalini neo non duality. <laughs> no, this is the truth because 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 non duality is temporary. We don't want to always be in non duality. If there's a fire truck coming down the road, you don't want to be like. <laughs> you want to be like me, my life, fire truck. And you want to get out of the way. Okay, I'm sure there's some yogis who're just like. <laughs> raw sensation of fire on my face um, so, so, so neo non-duality means you're free of non-duality you're just like all these non-dual people they're like stuck in duality and non-duality you're free of that you're like oh if it's dual then you're non-dual with it and if it's non-duality it's non-duality it's like it doesn't matter anymore. You're free of all that. Okay. You're free of philosophy. Yes. Uh-huh. So it's okay. just like that means when you're having experiences where you need to be a separate person, yeah. then you're just a separate person. Okay. But you can drop it.
0: Yeah.
1: Most people they can't drop it. Uh-huh. You see. So um, we're going to we're when we're done with the new wave of yoga. The next phase is going to be synth yoga. And when we're done with synth yoga, we're going to do post kundalini neo non duality yoga practice. Rolls off the top. Yeah, it's just like it's really going to catch on.
0: an acronym? No. Yeah,
1: just, and everyone will have like a tattoo of a fish. I used to teach in this in this moksha teacher training. Have you heard about this? And like all these young people would get tattoos of the moksha symbol on them. And I always be like, "What are you doing to your body? You don't even know what the word means." I'd feel like very parental, kind of. Okay, um, I'd like to do a practice together before we have a break. Do you have the attention to? Can we do that? Okay, some of you have done this with me before. I did this a lot at Center of Gravity. It's my favorite practice. Um, What we're going to do is we're going to practice Shavasana in pairs, in relationship. Okay? So the way it's going to work is you're going to sit face-to-face with somebody with your knees one centimeter apart. In other words... Very, very close, but no touchy-feely, no touching. I'm not into touching. No touching. Okay? Um, And then I'm going to guide you through a meditation practice on corpse pose. But we're going to do it in relationship together. Okay? So this is an invitation to try it. If you're not into this, you can just do corpse pose. But I encourage you to try it. It's really interesting. Um, If you need to be in a chair, then make sure the other person's in a chair, too, so you have eye contact. Um, So, find a partner, sit face-to-face. Maybe Catherine just wait to make sure that there's enough people. And then if you can have a partner.